pretty easy for these guys to silently obstruct and die. And, and you wouldn't even notice if you didn't have somebody actually in that room, mm. he, like actually watching the, the patient really actively, then they'll die pretty quickly. And I would say that they would die within five minutes. Hi, I'm Hubert. This is Gerardo. And I'm Dr. Bronwyn Fuligar. I'm a specialist small animal surgeon based in the Canadian Rocky Mountains. And you are listening to the VetVault Clinical Podcast. Hello, VetVelters. Welcome back and Happy New Year. We wanted to share one of the episodes with you from our clinical series of podcasts to give you an idea what they are about. This one is from a series we did on brachycephalic obstructed airway syndrome, i.e. squishy-faced dogs who can't breathe, with specialist surgeon Dr. Bronwyn Fulligar and Dr. Mark Tenenbaum, who is a GP vet who works in a practice that has a strong focus on helping brachycephalics. Regardless how you feel about bulldogs and their flat-faced friends, the reality is that you will have to deal with them. This episode is from our surgery series, but don't be put off if you're not the surgeon who'll be doing upper airway surgery. There is a lot of value here for any vet around general approaches to dealing with the brachies in hospital, from safe handling and sedating all the way to waking them up and managing them post-op for any surgical procedure, not just airway surgery. If you want to hear part one, three and four of the BOAS series to learn more about the pathophys of BOAS, how to decide which ones need surgery, how to assess them for surgery, what can go wrong, how to actually do the surgery and much, much more. And if you want access to the summarized show notes that you can refer back to later, then we'd love you to check out the VetVault Clinical at vvn.supercast.tech. That's VVN for VetVault Network or click the link in our show notes. Okay, over to Drs. Bronwyn and Mark. Enjoy. Last time we talked about brachycephalics and their airways and how we make our decisions around surgery with them. But today I want to zoom out a little bit and look at how we manage brachycephalics in hospital, whether it is for airway surgery or any other surgery, really. What, what talk about the risks with these guys and how do we how do we manage that? So I want to kick off with the with the first thing is when during that process from the moment you admit a bulldog in hospital to when it's healed and everything's fine again. When are they going to die? What are, the, what are the periods that we worry about most? If things are going to go wrong, what are the highest risk periods, Brian? What are they, is there research on it? Do, what do you guys find in practice? Yeah, I think there's two major risk periods. One of them is is having a bulldog or a brachycephalic dog who's stressed in the hospital. So this is a dog that's, you know, come in and, and either been admitted or been brought into the treatment area for anything, really, anything from a nail trim to an x-ray to a, just a regular physical exam. And it's quite common for brachycephalic patients to become increasingly stressed. And unlike you know, mesocephalic dogs or regular face dogs, when these dogs become stressed, they become, um, a lot of them, need to breathe through their mouth. And so they start panting. And as they pant, they generate lots of negative pressure in their upper airway. And that leads to edema and swelling and and collapse of the upper airway. Um, And then pretty rapidly can progress through to to upper respiratory obstruction or complete respiratory failure. And it can happen surprisingly fast. And so I think one big thing is 
identifying a, a brachycephalic dog that's getting a little stressed or anxious in the hospital and immediately dealing with that. So in some cases, it can be as simple as let's just take this dog back to the owner, put them in a cool exam room and let them settle down for a minute. And in other cases, it might be sedating that patient, putting them in a quiet space, providing them with a little bit of oxygen and trying to reverse this, this cycle of airway inflammation and, and airway obstruction. Um, so I think that applies to really any brachycephalic patient in the hospital. Um, and that's not, ju- that's not just post-op, that's even pre-op. No, that's pre-op. In. I mean, mm. I, fortunately, it, it hasn't specifically happened to me, but there certainly have been cases where a dog comes in for something completely unrelated, you know, an x-ray of their knee or even a, a blood collection or a nail mm. trim or something mm. like that. And it's been a hot day, the dog's had a car trip. And before you know it, especially if, if people who are less experienced maybe with bulldogs are, are handling the patient and they don't see the warning signs, these patients can can even die in the worst cases from a really simple procedure just because of this cycle of airway inflammation and stress. So that's kind of one risk period that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with surgery. Mm. And then I think the second risk periods are the perioperative period. So immediately preoperatively at the time when you've sedated your patient, but you haven't yet intubated them. That's a time when brachycephalic dogs, if they're heavily sedated, aren't able to maintain um, active opening of their oropharynx. So a lot of these dogs in order to breathe, usually have to actively contract the muscles of their oropharynx to keep their airway open. And as soon as we sedate them, that area relaxes and they can obstruct and silently um, go into a respiratory arrest. Many of them also regurgitate, so they can regurgitate and develop aspiration pneumonia before you've had a chance to intubate them. And then same goes for the post-operative periods. Hopefully everyone's fairly familiar with waking up brachycephalic dogs from anesthesia. We want them to be quiet, not stressed, intubated for as long as possible, preferably until they're up and almost walking around the room with their endotracheal tube in and then being closely monitored for airway swelling and and aspiration. And then having equipment and, and staff on standby for these patients in the ICU or in the hospital. So endotracheal tubes, an induction agent and a laryngoscope right by their kennel so that if somebody does notice that they're having difficulty breathing, it can be immediately addressed in an instant. Okay, cool. Mark, have you guys had problems? Have you seen stuff go wrong or, or, or almost go wrong? Yeah, certainly. I think, I think all, all those points are the risk periods that uh, Bronwyn's mentioned. And I think for us, the one we are most keeping a real close eye on is the post-operative and the initial post-operative. It's when they're waking up is their stress. And I think if a dog wakes up, they've already got some airway inflammation from the surgery mm. and all they need is a bit of stress, start breathing a bit, start breaking out. And that swelling just closes over that airways for us that's probably our highest risk period where we really keep a close eye we've got a much closer eye on them and ready to jump in if we need to it's interesting you talk about the stress brian in in emergency we'd often see that dogs the the brackets come in for mild heat strokes we're not talking about the the actual boiled heat stroke but just when they start getting up respiratory the stress on a hot day Mm -hmm. and they they start swelling closed from that (laughs) that they do Mm -hmm. and then you treat them and then it's a couple of hours in and they're fine and they wake up from, because most of them need to be knocked out when they come in to intubate while you settle things down. And they go really well. And then an hour or two, while you're waiting for the owner, the bloody things get stressed in the cage again and they start panting because they're stressed. And, they go, and you hear them go from normal panting to... And then they go blue mm-hmm. again. You go, oh, you're kidding me. So that stress really does get them. So we know these things go wrong. Do you... Well, obviously, the well, most 
bulldog owners or brachycephalic owners are pretty aware of the risks as well. But do you handle the client differently in terms of how you prep them for the surgery? Mark, I'm going to go with you straight away. Do you have different consent forms and things like that? How do you set things up with them? Yeah, no, certainly. The biggest thing here is the chat beforehand, which, yes, we do have a tweaked form that basically says, yet yeah, go ahead with whatever needs to be done because, as you know, we only know what we're dealing with mm-hmm. once we're actually in there having a look. So we have consent forms that write up exactly what their owners are comfortable with us doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. And we also have a consent form about the need for intranasal oxygen, a track tube, or what we describe as high-risk care, which comes into your CRIs and which, which we'll discuss and things about managing them post-operatively. Which, so we discuss that, but the main thing apart from the consent form is the pre-admit discussion or when we talk to them first a bit about BOAs. And we talk about the risks and we always talk about percentages, which we like to give them. And um, the general stats in Australia, this is specialists anywhere from dogs that are eight months of age up until 10 years of age, is 17% will need intranasal oxygen for the first 24 to 48 hours after BOA surgery. Uh, 7% will need a tracheostomy tube and one in 200 don't make it through the surgery. We don't bluff it and fake it. We're completely serious. And we say that if your dog doesn't need a track tube, not only does it change the outcome, but it's expensive yeah. and the price goes up and they need sometimes emergency care. And I think that having that discussion beforehand, which is a half hour discussion, Yeah. Then when it comes to the consent form, they're like, oh, yeah, I know all about this. Yeah, gotcha. We, we don't specifically have a different consent form at our practice for brachycephalic dogs, although we've considered it and, and the AVMA here in North America recently suggested that, but certainly have a really frank discussion with owners about perioperative risks and, and complications and, and what exactly will be involved with their pet. We always keep brachycephalic dogs in hospital for at least one night after their surgery. So they have 24-hour monitoring and nursing care. And I always explain to owners that the risk isn't over once the surgery is over. You know, they've mm. got this sort of at least 24-hour, if not mm. a little bit longer period where they might be at risk of upper respiratory obstruction or aspiration pneumonia. You know, there's so much information now on the internet. It's unusual for an owner of one of these breeds to to never have heard that anesthesia is, you know, most of them understand that anesthesia is more risky in their dog, even if they don't understand why. So it's... Yeah, it's almost the opposite. You almost need to be able to reassure them that we can do right. it because most of them mm. are actually right. too, too scared of having procedures done because all they've heard is your dog's going to die under anesthetic. Now, uh, Brian, we talked about this, the stress earlier and how you manage them, how you keep them calm before and after. We'll start with you and then we'll ask Mark the same thing. Have you guys got any protocols, any sedation protocols? Or obviously, trying to keep them in a calm environment. I want to say that goes without saying. But chemically, how do you keep them happy in hospital? Yeah, certainly. So we do a couple of things. We tend to always operate our brachycephalic patients first thing in the morning, if possible. So Mm -hmm. if I have an upper airway surgery to do, I want that surgery to be done early in the day so that one, the patient isn't sitting in the hospital stressing before they get their pre-med. And two, we've got a full team in the ICU ready and waiting for that patient to come downstairs. And then I'll be in the building for the rest of the day, ready to do a temporary tracheostomy if needed. Mm. So everything's set up for that dog to, if, if anything happens, we're all here and ready for it. And, you know, it's not the middle of the night or anything like that. In terms of drugs and, and medications that can be helpful, if dogs come in for their initial appointment and they're a particularly stressed little dog, then I'll often send home some trazodone anti-anxiety medication with their owner and advise the owner to give that one hour before they come to the clinic in the morning. We've also got trazodone in the hospital, so we can give them that. You know, it is an oral medication the day of surgery, but I don't think that increases the risk of 
you know, aspiration of these patients, it's probably more important for them to be calm. I've heard of others using in conjunction with trazodone some gabapentin as well as like a little cocktail for stressed uh, brachycephalic dogs and it does work quite nicely. So you, you want to have a dog that's sitting in their kennel waiting for surgery, that's breathing calmly, that you ho- hopefully you hear minimal respiratory noise and the patient is sort of resting in their kennel. I guess I usually avoid giving heavy sedative medication until we're all ready to start with the procedure. So I avoid giving, you know, dexmedetomidine, for example, until we're, we're all ready and, and waiting to be monitoring that patient really closely. Because um, yeah. what I don't want to happen is for that dog to get really sedate and then close up their airway. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Mark, what about you guys? Have you got any, any recipes? Yeah. And I was actually asked, Bromon, with the trazodone, do you give it a few days leading up to the surgery or do you just give it that morning? If the dog is stressed at home, then we can give it at home as well. But otherwise, usually you just need to give trazodone sort of an hour before an anticipated stressful event. So it's not a drug that needs to build up in the system over a number of days to be effective. I think in our clinic, um, pretty similar. We, we use for our pre-meds, the metatomidine and methadone. And we use half-dose metatomidine um, that we'd normally use. Um, so we go a bit lighter on that. And we also use either metamide or serenia as well beforehand because of the potential for regurge or things like that you use one, used, one one or the other or do you combine them we used to use serenia uh, mm-hmm. but now we're more using metamide and we also sometimes will send them home with metamide we used to which we don't anymore use losec or meprazole it depends on the history of the dog and the history of regurgitation and things like that um, so why did you stop using the meprazole you know we weren't really getting a big difference for the post-op regurge yeah. but maybe Bob would have more yeah. ideas on that yeah so it, it depends a little bit on each individual patient but i always use prophylactic gi protective medication in any brachycephalic dog that's having any kind of surgery in the dogs who are regurgitating fairly frequently prior to surgery i'll start treating them with uh, medical management so usually omeprazole and uh, and sometimes also metoclopramide at home for five days prior to surgery so omeprazole it's a know proton pump inhibitor so it'll reduce the amount of um, acidity of the stomach it Mm. won't prevent regurgitation by any sort of physical means but if the dogs do reflux it's less likely to cause esophagitis whereas metoclopramide will kind of tighten that lower esophageal sphincter and hopefully prevent regurgitation and then preoperatively i'll treat them with injectable omeprazole which in the north america is called pantoprazole In, in the immediate preoperative period and meropotent or serenia at the same time. And then sometimes if they've been a frequent regurgitator, we'll treat them with a metoclopramide CRI. So metoclopramide has a pretty short duration of action. So it's more effective if you can give it as a CRI. And then to go home, usually I will send these dogs home with omeprazole and or metoclopramide tablets, depending on how much regurgitation they've had. But yeah, I think even the dogs that are not clinically regurgitating a lot at home, we just know that the, the bulldog and the brachycephalic population has a higher risk of reflux mm. and aspiration yeah. just as a general rule. It makes sense to me to use it. Uh, I had a yeah. listened to a talk once by a medicine specialist who said they dealt with a fair amount of esophageal strictures and burns post mm-hmm. any surgery. And we're not talking brachycephalic, he's talking about any dog. And he says they are such a nightmare to deal with. He's to the point, he said that if he ever had to go back into general practice, he would put every single dog that's going to have surgery onto the meprazole or or something a day or two before and stay on it for five days afterwards just in case they have a regurgitation. Mark, I want to go back to, to the metatomidine that you guys use. Is that as soon as they walk in the door? 
No, no, no. It's not as soon. Um, again, as Bronwyn said, we also try and do, especially the high-risk bowers in the morning. Yeah. Um, but we only pre-med them when we're ready. So this is not to keep them calm in the cage or something. It's just the, the actual pre-medication. Exactly right. Whereas post-op, we do, and I'll have to get you the dosages as well for this, is a metatomin CRI, which okay. um, kind of to keep them, again, more for the high-risk ones or where we're concerned that they're going to stress out. And so we put them on a CRI afterwards. And sometimes now we're actually preemptively using the CRI. I'd love to get that dose because in my mind, metatomin is... Uh, it bombs an animal out, but that's obviously at the, the standard, I'm going to do a major procedure dose. How how cooked are they? Are they just nice and chill? Are they still sitting up or are they just lying calmly sleeping? Or what do they look like on that CRI that you guys use? Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're pretty still alert, reactive, um, and we taper it. And it's not a long-term thing. It's just the initial, you know, maybe hour or two hours after surgery that we want to make sure that they're recovering appropriately. Um, but they're not, yeah, not, not bombed. And is it just metatomidin or do you put anything else in there? Is there an opi- use, opioid in? I suppose there are opioids anyway for, for pain control, I'd imagine. Yeah, we, we just use just met- And I guess metatomidin has pain, is a pain relief on board as well. So it mm. has, you know, what is it, alpha 2. But we also have, whether we're using some, we use steroids, some we use Medicam. Um, so non-steroidals, post-op relief for these dogs. Yeah. That's a good question. Steroids versus non-steroidals. Bronwyn, is there a, a preference for you? Yeah, so I'll routinely give the brachycephalic patients that are having airway surgery an anti-inflammatory dose of dexamethasone uh, and induction as well, so 0.1 milligrams per kilogram IV. And that's sort of a prophylactic because it reduces the inflammation and the swelling and edema of the upper airway and reduces the incidence of the dogs having an upper respiratory obstruction. And I think that's fairly common in the specialty world at least to give a prophylactic steroid anti-inflammatory it's less for pain relief and more to reduce swelling and then because i've given that single dose of dexamethasone um, i'm not going to give a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to those dogs perhaps if i had a really you know a dog where i'd done a an airway surgery that that wasn't super clinical and there was minimal swelling and the dog had also had some sort of other procedure and there was no history of regurgitation maybe i would use NSAIDs like non-steroidals but Usually I'll give the dogs at least 24 hours after surgery before I'll start non-steroidal anti-inflammatories at all, just in case in that post-operative period, we need to give um, steroid anti-inflammatories. I never send the dogs home with, with prednisone or a steroid as a pain relief medication. If they've had a steroid, I'll send them home. If it's a really small dog with oral buprenorphine, which, which can be absorbed transmucosally or gabapentin, or you can use acetaminophen or paracetamol or, or combinations of that medication as well. It's obviously off-label, but it can be used for post-operative pain relief in dogs that cannot have an NSAID. I also just wanted to, I can tell you guys to what we use for our pre-med. So we use in North America more commonly dexmedetomidine, which is very similar in, in action to metatomidine. It's more potent. So the dose that we would use would be IV as a pre-med. And then generally uh, we use a, a lot of hydromorphone, which mm-hmm. is not as common in Australia for because it's the most commonly available and, and most cost-effective opioid pain relief. But okay. hydromorphone has a, a, it tends to make, it can make dogs vomit and it tends to make dogs pant. And so what I'll tend to do is give the dexmedetomidine induced with propofol or alfaxalone. And then once the patient has had their airway exam and they're intubated at that point, give them their hydromorphone so as to avoid a patient where you're trying to do an upper airway exam and they're either panting a lot or worst case um, vomiting. Okay, um, cool. So we'll kind of delay the, the opioid until the patient's intubated. That's a good idea. I don't know what you use, Mark, but um, methadone's a 
one of our most common yeah. opioids, yeah. and that can make them pant like crazy. So mm. it's a good idea to hold that off. Yeah, methadone has a less incidence of vomiting, which is nice. And then, yeah, for post-op pain relief, um, depending on the, on the patient, we might use methadone or uh, buprenorphine IV while they're in the hospital. And again, avoiding uh, hydromorphone and fentanyl just because of the, the panting and in fentanyl's case, the ileus and the regurgitation potential. Um, I tend not to put them on a dexmedetomidine CRI. I might use a microdose of dexmedetomidine as they're waking up if they're having a little bit of an anxious, anxious episode. So I, I, that would be sort of half to one microgram per kilogram of dexmedetomidine, really low dose, just and I find that takes the edge off and then treat them either with intermittent dexmedetomidine, low dose azapromazine, or once they're able to swallow and have a little bit of food, some trazodone again. But I think I, I would rather have these patients be alert, sitting up in their kennel, looking around, swallowing, because that enables them to control their own airway and use their own muscles to keep their airway open. I think if they're too sedate, that's when you can run into problems. So it's this very fine line between having yeah. the patient not stressed, but also not completely zonked. Yeah. One thing I would mention with brachycephalic dogs and alpha-2 agonists like metatomidine or dexmetatomidine is that brachys tend to have really high vagal tone to begin with. And so they can have, you know, pretty profound bradycardia associated with alpha twos. And so just being aware of that and, and monitoring it for it and then being prepared to reverse it or use glyco as needed. Okay, yeah. cool. Right. So knockdown and, and anesthetic maintenance, is there anything different there compared to other patients that you reserve for the brachycephalics? Was that just a standard knockdown and intubate and ISO or whatever you're using? I think if, if I'm doing only an airway surgery, so the anesthesia time is going to be quite, quite short, mm-hmm. I'll use propofol rather than alfaxalone. And this, this may be just an anecdotal experience of mine. I'm not sure if other people have felt this, but I find that dogs that have had a really short anesthesia with alfaxalone, when they're waking up and they're waking up from alfaxalone as opposed to waking up from isoflurane, if it's been a longer anesthesia, mm-hmm. they can be quite panty and have a period of quite profound dysphoria. And that's not what I want in a brachycephalic patient. I'll use propofol because I feel like their recovery is smoother. That may just be my own anecdotal evidence. There's no, both of them are safe. How short is short? If, like how, how quick is the surgery? Uh, like 20 minutes, half an hour. Okay. Okay. So yeah. A- so, I mean, the patients are still going on to isoflurane. Yep. They're still being intubated and they're on ISO and oxygen. But, yep. or, or for example, if, you know, we're doing an upper airway exam, but we may not do surgery. We're just looking at the airway and then waking up the patient. Then that would be pretty quick as well. Okay. Um, I, I, we'll talk about this, I guess, when it comes a bit about a bit of the procedure itself. But I know with our head surgeon, I think the laryngeal saccules, if they're averted, remove them before intubating. So that can just change a bit about maintaining almost on an IV anesthetic for that short period of time. It's a quick procedure, that part, but that kind of is a bit of an iteration to your standard one because... And that's on the assumption that you're doing BOAS. Um, so you do your quick airway exam and then correct appropriately. Um, but if it's got averted laryngeal saccules and you are removing them, that kind of tweaks the protocol a little bit. But otherwise, pretty stock standard. Yeah, I do remove averted laryngeal saccules with the patient extubated. I think I've come, got into the habit of doing them second in line in the procedure after the soft palate because I find that in some patients, by the time you've done your upper airway exam, maybe the patient hasn't been breathing great because they've just had some induction agent or maybe they're mildly cyanotic or their SPO2 is not the greatest. I like to just get them intubated, get them on oxygen, mm. you know, improve their ventilation and then do the soft palate. So they've had a nice period of time breathing oxygen and then top them up with some induction agent, remove the saccules and then re-intubate them 
And then the endotracheal tube places some pressure on the region where the saccules have been excised and helps to control some of the hemorrhage and then go on and do their nares after that and then obviously extubate them slowly. I think um, the other thing from an anesthetic monitoring standpoint in brachycephalic dogs that have had BOAS is that their resting uh, entitled CO2 mm-hmm. is much higher than a normal dog. So they've been living life, some of them, with an entitled CO2 on a daily basis of 50 uh, millimetres of mercury, for example. And so don't be surprised if you're a brachycephalic patient under anaesthesia is ticking along nicely with kind of a higher than normal entitled CO2. We usually try and keep dogs at around sort of 40 to 45 um, millimetres of mercury. But some of your brachycephalic patients, it'll be hard to, to get their CO2 lower just because they've equilibrated and you may find that it takes a higher level of entitled CO2 to stimulate them to breathe. Most dogs have a their respiratory drive is primarily from the entitled CO2, but in brachycephalic patients, expect to kind of stimulate them to breathe as you're waking them up. So as you're saying that if they're not, if they've got a bit of post-induction apnea or they're just not breathing, not to stress as much as in because you need that entitled a bit higher to stimulate the breathing, is that? Yeah, so... You may need to, as your if your patient has stopped breathing while they're under anaesthesia and you've been ventilating them, it may take a little bit longer and you may need to let that entitled CO2 get a little bit higher than, than you would be comfortable with in a non-brachycephalic patient in order to stimulate their respiratory centre to get them breathing again. Good things have weird physiological responses to actually getting room air into their lungs. <laughs> they right. Actually normal amounts of oxygen. Like, what the hell is happening? What's all this oxygen? Where yeah. Where is it coming from? All <laughs> uh, right, and then that post-op period. The well, first of all, the, the setup. Um, and obviously, Brian, you work in specialist clinics, so I presume you're going to have a full 24-hour team in most of the hospitals there taking care of them. If you're in a clinic, well, let's ask it this way, Mark. What what's your setup with these guys? Do they do they always stay 24 hours post-op? Do you have to have 24-hour monitoring to to do these safely at all? Yeah, uh, good question, Brian. You and I, I guess, our clinics will differ on this and we're not a 24-hour clinic again we see a lot of young or you know eight 12 month old dogs if we have healthy dogs come in and have a, a pretty straightforward boas procedure where they don't have any concerns they're home that afternoon if it's a let's say the dog needs the track tube post mm-hmm. um then again it really depends on the dog depends on the owners there's a lot of factors that come into play but obviously if it's a high risk and we have five minutes down the road in emergency center okay, cool. and right. we have a relationship with which um, they offer what we call babysits, yeah. which can vary from a babysit. It's literally just keeping an eye on it all the way upwards. Mm-hmm. So, you know, knowing what to look for, knowing what's a concern, what's not a concern, having them five minutes next to an emergency center should mm. things go wrong. Okay. We think sometimes, and Roman, you can comment on this, is especially high stress dogs that have needed a track tube, Yes, keeping them in hospital gets us to have our eyes on them, but sometimes the hospital environment can stress them out itself. Yeah, yeah. So we find getting them home early, and we usually when we send them home, we have the owner in the room with them, seeing them for a few hours before we send them home, just to see how they go with it. And we think actually that reduces risk, and sometimes that can reduce the dog's need to be in hospital for longer because they're at home, they're comfortable in their environment. And again, that's all on the assumption that everyone's knows what they're doing, everyone's comfortable, mm-hmm. the dog's comfortable. There's a lot of things that need to be ticked off, but that's our post of care. We don't have a 24-hour. We okay. don't routinely recommend it unless cases are appropriate for it. But you have a easy availability to 24 hours. I think that's the, Absolutely. the key thing. So I'm yeah. trying to imagine if you're a small country practice and, and you're not 24 hours and there's no emergency center, should you be should you be doing these? 
probably probably send them somewhere where they where they can be watched potentially overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think again we see slightly different populations. I think it's totally feasible that you know otherwise healthy young dog with very mild clinical signs that has surgery at you know finishes surgery at 10 a.m. could conceivably go home at 6 p.m. and and be fine. You know, providing that they haven't had any post-operative issues, I can completely see that that could be reasonable if they've had a very straightforward procedure. I think the majority of cases that I see at least are fairly clinical by the time they've come to me, and so I I don't think I've ever sent one home the day of surgery, mainly because we do have 24-hour hospital monitoring and and every surgery patient in our hospital stays overnight for intravenous pain relief and and post-op monitoring. One thing I would say about having these patients in in your ICU or in your hospital is that they need to be in the post-operative period somewhere where they're easily visible. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty easy for these guys to silently obstruct and die and and you wouldn't even notice if you didn't have somebody actually in that room like actually watching the the patient really actively and and it's very it's very tragic when that happens so i think having them in a kennel that's easily seen from the computer station for example is really important i if a patient needs a a tracheostomy tube i would say as a absolute rule that i would never send a patient home with a tracheostomy tube in place i think by default if they've had to have a trach tube placed then their upper respiratory tract is probably if not completely obstructed, at very high risk of being completely obstructed. And so if that trach tube slips or becomes blocked, the patient is going to, their, their respiratory tract is going to obstruct and they'll die pretty quickly. And I would say that they would die within five minutes. So you don't have, you know, if, that's, if that happens, you don't have five minutes to get them to the emergency centre. And I think unless the owners are themselves veterinarians, it's very difficult. I don't think owners should be attempting to replace a tracheostomy tube that's fallen out or become blocked or anything like that. And so I I guess I would say that if your patient has had that kind of a complication post-op, then my strong advice would be that patient should go to the 24-hour center for for overnight monitoring. Okay, so are we we missing anything in that post-op period from either of you? Any any other inputs or anything? But I I think we've covered it pretty well. Or is there there something? Um, I think one question I I had for you, Mark, and Mm. um, was when... When do you feed these patients postoperatively or at what point yeah, in the post-op period do you tell owners that they should feed them and, and what do you feed them? Yeah. Um, usually we the next day we'll feed. That night, depends on the level of interest, but slowly really small amounts. And we go soft food. So that can be whether that's like chunks of meat or whether that's canned food. Obviously having airway work done is going to have that information. So we always say not dry food, nothing hard that's going to be abrasive. But we usually... Bones? Again, what about bones? Can they have bones? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, yeah, not for real. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it should, certainly in that period, we kind of say for the first five or seven days is our point where we stay on a, a wet, soft food that's going to allow, you know, nothing to go down and scratch where the stitches or depending what's been done. But, yeah, we try and feed them pretty soon afterwards, assuming they want to eat. And then by 10 to 14 days afterwards, because um, we do our checkup at 10 to 14 days, it's our first checkup. Um, at that stage, assuming he's going well, they transition back onto their normal dry food. Are you similar to that? Are you different? Yeah, yeah, pretty similar. I tend to hold off foods until the morning after surgery, and then I'll put on the treatment sheet that I would like to feed them myself. So I'll hand feed them just a couple of um, meatballs. So we form Soft food's important and also soft food that can be easily swallowed whole as a bolus. So the goal is to not have food getting stuck on the stitches. So Mm -hmm. rather than giving them a bowl full of soft food, I'll put the soft food into kind of meatball 
and you want to be watching the dog swallowing carefully just to make sure that they are swallowing and separating their breathing from their from their swallowing mm. um, for that first meal. And then after that, yeah, feeding frequent small meals of, of meatballs. And I'll ask the owners to hand feed them for the first couple of days in that same way and then switch to, to soft foods for a week or two and then back to the normal food. But I think what you want to avoid is morning after surgery with your probably quite hungry bulldog giving them a, a huge plate of um, of food, kibble, food yeah. kibbles or any sort of food that they sort of <laughs> stick their head into and, and choke or aspirate because they, they're trying to work out how those pharyngeal muscles and, and swallowing is is coordinated again. So I love that tip of the, of the little meatballs. I, I can also yeah. imagine if you're always the one feeding them that those dogs must love Dr. Bronwyn when they, when they come in for their checkups. They're like, hey, it's meatball girl. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it's more that I just want to see uh. – um, yeah, I, I just want to see them swallow, you know, make sure that it, everything's, everything looks good. Makes you sleep better. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of reassuring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I was going to say, I think also in that post-op period, we more and more I'm finding that the first week, a lot of them do have, if anything, like an increase in maybe some regurgitation or, you know, a bit here and there in the first week, but usually it's by 10 to 14 days post-op, especially with the snoring, sometimes they're a bit louder. And we always talk about with our owners that expect, a little bit more snoring, expect, because it's those expectations that you set, or if they think my dog the next day is going to be silent and no regurgitation, they start regurgitating five times a day and snoring, well, they're going to be concerned. So it's setting those expectations, and we find that they're still kind of regurging more sometimes, just because you've got stitches in there, you've got airway inflammation, but usually it's a 10 to 14-day mark where they're like, the first week was rough, and that's where they start to see the benefits, and they actually start to see, and then usually between that two-week to three-month post-op is when they start to exercise them. So they usually, most people say, oh, I haven't exercised yet. And then we kind of get an idea of the benefits in the exercise tolerance noise kind of area. Okay, is that us? I think we're done. Uh, that was great. That's super, super insightful. I love that. There's a lot of advice there for, for, the, for the referring vet, even if you're not the one doing the surgery, setting these upright and then wrapping them up nicely. It's perfect. And then for the next episode, we will talk about the surgery a little bit more about the actual detail of surgery what gets done just so everybody has a better understanding of what actually happens when you're in there and also talking about how to assess the respiratory tract for surgery if you're not the surgeon getting this checked out and deciding whether you should send them off or not hopefully everybody enjoyed that and we'll join you next time thanks again brian and mark thanks very much it's my pleasure You know those conversations that you have at conferences back in the days when we still had big vet conferences when people are chatting to the lecturers and asking questions and you hear things like this isn't really in the books but here's what I think. It's in those kinds of conversations that the best nuggets of wisdom appear. The nitty gritty real life details that you can only get from years and years of experience. And it's exactly those kinds of conversations that we try to emulate on the VetVault clinical podcasts. We don't want lectures we want to hear about the challenges, the tips, the stuff-ups, the this is how I do it. Go to vvn.supercast.tech to join in the conversation.